Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. One of the things I love most about IKEA, which for those of you not familiar with IKEA, is a wonderland of Nordic-inspired furniture, decor items, and most importantly, storage solutions. But what I love about IKEA is that when I walk into that place, I feel like it's actually possible to organize my life. That if I just buy the right combination of shelving units and baskets and small cute things meant to hold smaller and even cuter things, everything in my life will somehow feel easier to manage and also a lot cuter. I think IKEA and all the other household decor companies clogging our social media feeds are onto something. They're onto a pervasive, near-universal desire we have to compartmentalize, to box up messy thoughts and emotions in the hopes of being able to just get on with it already. We like things to be neat and tidy. We like to clear out any obstacles to our productivity. For Marissa Renee Lee, this was basically the approach she took to navigating grief. Grief that began when she was a teenager and her mother Lisa was diagnosed with MS. Grief that continued as she became a caregiver for her mom. Grief that grew bigger when her mother was diagnosed with cancer. And grief that became enormous when her mother died of that cancer in 2008, when Marissa was in her mid-twenties. Marissa's approach to grief was to just keep going. And going she went. She's been working as a writer, an entrepreneur, the founder of a nonprofit, and even as a member of President Obama's administration. Most recently, Marissa's grief expanded to include infertility, a pregnancy loss, and the death of a cousin from COVID-19. It was these last three losses that shook things up and led Marissa to realize that she didn't have to box up her grief and shove it to the back of a closet. That for her, grief was the same as love, and that to grieve was to be able to continue to love that loss didn't have to end her relationships with the people who had died. She discovered a way to open up those boxes, to sit with the reality of what was lost, to honor what was. And in that process, she also found a way to make room for both joy and beauty. Marissa wrote about these discoveries in her new book, Grief is Love, Living with Loss, that was published just last month. In our conversation, we talk about how she got to the point of writing this book, what she's learned about grief, what it's been like to grieve in this world as a Black woman, and all the ways that she stays connected to the memory of her mom, Lisa. One note, listeners, there was something weird happening with Marissa's headphones during our recording, so you might hear some static that I wasn't able to edit out. Maybe like me, you can just imagine that there were these cute little animals gathered around making scuttery sounds. Okay, here's our conversation. Marissa, thank you so much for making time on this Friday afternoon to be part of Grief Out Loud. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. And I know we're going to talk a lot about your upcoming book, Grief 
is Love, which comes out, listeners, on Tuesday, April 12th, which might be, it might be after April 12th by the time you're listening to this. So if it is, make sure you go check out the book. I'll link to it in all of the show note areas. And, you know, we'll talk a lot about the book and kind of your experiences, but I always like to just start with the story that brings people to writing or singing about grief. And on your website, there's a line that says something of like, to know Marissa is to know her mother, Lisa. And I was just curious about that. Like, what do people learn about your mom by knowing you? Oh, they learn so much. Um, I It's both sort of an accidental thing and an intentional thing. You know, there are lots of things about me that are the way they are because of her. You know, my mom was really committed to joy and having fun, even when she was sometimes really sick. And so I am always down for a good time, you know, hosting a party, attending a party, doing something else to celebrate or take care of a friend. Um, My mom was also an excellent cook. And I have thankfully inherited that skill. And it's something that I truly enjoy doing. So, you know, folks know if they're coming over here, they're going to get a good meal, a nice stiff drink, and just have a relaxing good time and be cared for because that was sort of the environment that I was raised in. You know, our house was the house where all the kids hung out after school, you know, the house that had the prom party and the Halloween get together and all of those things. Um, so yeah, I would say, I would say it's, it's mostly in all of the ways that I choose to be intentional about joy and taking care of other people. Like that is very much my mom. And I just, I share about her all the time. You know, she was, she was my mom. She was a huge part of my life and continues to be. And I don't want I don't want the fact that she is dead and has been for over 14 years to keep people from feeling connected to her. Mm. So what you're saying is you're both like committed introverts. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And the absolute opposite of that. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. You mentioned that, you know, that your mom liked to take care of people. And that you have inherited and carry on that legacy of caring for others. And and caregiving was such a big part of your adolescence. Your mom was diagnosed with MS when you were 12, and you started taking care of her then, and then through her cancer diagnosis up until her death. And I just wonder what, in writing the book and being an adult, like what do you understand about caregiving as an adolescent that you didn't understand while you were experience it, experiencing it, but can understand now? from a place of reflection? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is at the time, I thought I was basically an adult. You know, when when my mom first got sick, I, I was 13 and I, you know, I was finishing up middle school, getting ready for high school. And I just felt like, okay, you know, this is what has happened. And so I have these different responsibilities now. You know, whether it was taking her grocery shopping so she could get, you know, food for the family for the week or helping with meal planning or doing laundry or, you know, doing something additional for my father or my sister because my mom would normally be the one to do it and couldn't. And it was, I knew that it wasn't normal, obviously, because I had other friends with healthy parents and and such, but I don't think I realized how abnormal it was as a young teen to have all of those, you know, adult responsibilities, plus just 
the weight and the fear and the uncertainty and insecurity that comes when your family life changes seemingly overnight. I, I don't wish that I didn't do it. Like I, I know that even knowing all I know now, I would still encourage the, you know, 12, 13, however old kid to pitch in and, and, you know, do what you can to step up and support your family. But I wish that I knew that I also needed to do things to support myself. You know, like I, I wish that I had felt comfortable acknowledging to someone, you know, whether a professional or a mentor or, you know, I don't even know who that this was a really hard situation um, and that it's complicated and, and there is, you know, there is some trauma in having your parents suddenly go from being healthy to being very sick and their both their needs changing and their ability to care for you changes. And I just wish that I had someone to kind of guide me through some of that and just to be a space where I could vent and complain and get some of the stress and, you know, sort of fear and anxiety that I internalized out of my body. Like that's, that's what I wish had gone differently. That seems to be the overarching theme of your entire book, you know, grief is love is that there's this idea when we're just getting through something, like we're surviving it, if we take any time at all to reflect upon what's actually happening and take in the meaning of it and share that with someone else that somehow that will render us completely incapable of continuing to survive what we're going through. And that seems to be the biggest takeaway of like, there's a way to have both of those things. You can still do the things you need to do and have time and space for reflection and understanding and like taking in a bit of the enormity of what's going on. It doesn't have to be this divergent experience of I'm either surviving or I'm thinking about how I survive something. Yeah, well, because I think that what people often fail to understand, especially when you're going through something that's just really heavy and hard and challenging, the way that grief is, you know, particularly in those early days, weeks, months, is that opening up about it is the thing that makes it more bearable. And you don't have to be someone who's putting it, you know, all over Instagram or social media, you finding a trusted someone, whether it's a professional therapist, counselor, etc., or even just a spouse or a friend or some other family member, where you can say, like, this is what I'm experiencing, like, that is honestly the only thing that is going to make it easier to live with. Denying and trying to trying to act as though you're fine when you're not leads to a laundry list of other issues and problems, like both psychological challenges and it can lead to physical health problems. You know, we we have this idea that if we don't if we don't speak about the things that are hard or bad or painful that they'll just disappear, like that they'll go away, you know, that that suppression will lead to what we ultimately want, which is to not feel this pain. But instead, we actually make ourselves worse, because the amount of energy that it takes to suppress something that is like, yearning to be expressed, causes more pain. People just understanding that the only thing that makes feelings less powerful is naming them is really important. I think it's easy to sit back and say, well, that's kind of the general, you know, where we live in the U.S. or yeah. Western society or people throw around a lot of terms of like, you know, we're sort of 
uh, imbued with this idea of like, if I just shove it aside or don't talk about it, then it won't affect okay. me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I also think that there's a lot, that message gets translated in different ways and in different intensities, depending on our unique identity constellations, like our race and our gender and our gender identity. And I just wonder if like, what's your, you write quite a bit about this, but the idea of like your own unique identity constellation of who you are in the world, like how did that play a role in the messaging you received of, I just have to keep going? Yeah, I felt like it was my job to suck it up and keep moving forward. You know, I, I mean, I would even say to myself, your mom died, but everyone's mom dies at some point, you know, like essentially like, what's the big deal? Um, so I was, I was literally gaslighting my own grief because I just, I believed as a black woman, you are, you are raised to prioritize caring for others above caring for yourself. And I, and I don't want to speak for all black women everywhere. But when we look at the history of black women in this country, you know, we're the only beings who have been used for both forced labor and reproduction. And the fact that, you know, the children that we had during slavery didn't even belong to us. And then when you think about the caretaking role that black women have played throughout history, you get at this image that is, you know, you're either the strong black woman nurturer, or you are the angry black woman. Like those are basically your options. And I never wanted to be the angry black woman. So I really just did what I've always done when it came to my grief after my mom died. You know, I, I didn't talk about it. Like I could talk about my mom's death and breast cancer and you know, mammograms, et cetera, for hours at a charity function. But I couldn't just talk about and honor and accept the pain that I was experiencing. It just seemed, it seemed irresponsible and immature, you know, irresponsible because, you know, what if I did start to express it and I fell apart, then what was going to happen? You know, what was going to happen to me? Who was going to take care of me without my mom? It felt immature because you know, I was like, I, I just turned 25. I thought I was an adult. Like you shouldn't be so sad and crying all the time and having all of these challenges as an adult. But I didn't realize that everything I was experiencing was totally normal in the context of grief. And if I had just accepted it, I think it, it would have been so much easier to bear. The way you write about your grief, there's almost an evolution of your mom dies when you're in your mid 20s and you respond in this particular way. And then later in your life, you have the, the loss of a pregnancy. And that seems to just change your understanding and uh, the way you interact with grief. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So when we, when we lost our pregnancy, my mom had been gone for over a decade. And when we experienced the pregnancy loss, I, I mean, it was a new kind of brokenness because we we didn't have the pregnancy or the baby that we wanted. I had had to go through a lot to get to the point of even becoming pregnant. As a result of the pregnancy loss and everything that it took to get me to a place where we could even try, uh, plus my underlying health condition, I was just, I was incredibly sick. So I was physically sick 
and emotionally broken. And as someone who is known for always having a plan, we didn't have a backup plan. You know, like we had already been in the process for three years and this, this last chance, like essentially was our backup plan and then it didn't work out. So we also didn't have a plan for how we were going to grow our family. I realized in part because the loss happened at the end of 2019 and then obviously early 2020, we were all stuck at home. And in that period of global grief and isolation and, you know, lack of distractions, I realized just how much I still missed my mom. And that, you know, I, I thought if you had asked me, I would have said, oh yeah, I'm totally, I'm, I'm over it. But I realized in early 2020 that that just wasn't true. I started thinking about, you know, what does, what does it even mean to get over it? You know, because now I'm here in this place of fresh grief. And all I want is this woman who's been gone for over a decade. Is there something wrong with me? And I eventually concluded, no, there's nothing wrong with me at all. This is actually the way it's supposed to be. Like, what, what are you even trying to get over when you say that you've gotten over it or you've moved on? Like you shared love in this world with someone else, with someone, especially with someone who you considered one of yours, you know, a parent, a spouse, a child, a best friend, and now they're gone. You're not going to forget that they existed. You're not going to forget about the relationship that you shared with them. So now it's just a matter of figuring out what it looks like for you to continue that relationship beyond the grave. And, you know, for me, I know, I know my mom loves me still. I know I love my mom and I find ways to carry her into the present moment that feel appropriate to me, you know, whether it's an outsized birthday celebration for my husband, because she would always go big for mine and my sister's birthdays or the chocolate chip cookies that I make every couple of months that I know would be her favorite if she were still here. Easter was always a big deal, you know, making sure even before we had a child that we did big Easter celebrations focused on the kids in our lives. Like you can decide what it looks like for you. And a lot of it is actually interior and about values and, you know, how you choose to live in a way that kind of exemplifies not the relationship you had, but perhaps something that you took from that relationship. You know, my mom was, like I said earlier, a very joyful person. So whenever I have an opportunity to go big around joy, you know, I think of her. It's not like the big mistake, you know, the big lie about grief is that it's something that happens in the immediacy following a death. And that's just not true. That's just not all of it. Like it's a half truth. The real truth is grief is the repeated experience of learning how to live after you've had a significant loss and it doesn't stop. That was one of the biggest lessons I learned from losing the pregnancy, you know, how quickly it brought me back to my mother. And in that too, you went much more public with your grief. Yeah. You know, you decided to post on social media. It led to writing this book. And I wonder what it's been like after so many years of having that grief maybe be a much more internal experience to have it be so externalized now, knowing that by next week, the whole world is going to be able to read your story. <laughs> it is overwhelming. It's, it's so interesting. It's one of those things, when I was writing the book, I wasn't thinking about 
how it was going to be received. I felt like, and I, I feel this way about writing in general, if you write the truest thing, like the thing that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, that is usually the thing that people respond the most to because we all have way more in common than we ever want to admit or acknowledge. And so writing this book, you know, I was committed to just telling the truth and doing whatever I could to validate other people's grief experiences and hopefully provide something that can serve as more of a compass than a roadmap, because I think everyone's experiences with grief are very different. Now that the book is going to be out in the world in a couple of days, I definitely feel a little bit exposed, for lack of a better term, because I did put it all out there. You know, everything that I thought would be helpful, no matter how embarrassing or strange it may be, I included it. So we'll see what happens. Um, it is it is definitely a weird feeling. And the only word I could think of is exposure. You know, like my, my stuff is out there now. It's it is it is definitely a little uncomfortable. It sounds like we need a follow up question <laughs> interview in the next two months to see how it feels once it's out there. <laughs> Seriously, I wanted to ask you a little bit just about the title. So when I first saw it, I was like, "Grief is love." Why do I I'm like? Ooh, you know, it made me do a little like, oh. And I think it's because there's a term out there, or a phrase out there. People say that grief is the price we pay for love, I think. And I've always disliked that yeah, one because, same. you know, we can have a relationship with someone that is not loving and we can still experience grief. And that's super confusing for people. So when I was reading your book, I was like, okay, I'm going to give this title a chance. And then I read more about it and I was like, oh, that makes so much sense to me. We would rarely say to someone, how come you're not over loving your parent yet? How come you're not over loving your child yet? And yet we say, why are you not over grieving these people? Yeah. So yeah, tell me more about like the title, how you came to that concept. So I had the opportunity to do an interview with Trayvon Martin's mother, Sabrina Fulton, in the summer of 2020, a couple weeks after George Floyd's murder. And I was doing a series of conversations specifically around Black grief you know, as we saw people take to the streets and all of the, you know, state state sanctioned police violence that was coming to light that summer. And also watching all of this unfold as COVID-19 deaths continued to have a disproportionate toll on Black communities. I just, I had questions and I had thoughts. And so she was one of the people I sat down with and I had seen her play a role in comforting some of the families who had lost folks to police violence that summer, being a leader on MSNBC and CNN and doing all these things. And, and I just couldn't understand why she was still, frankly, being so generous with the rest of us, given what she'd experienced. And she said, I know my son still loves me. And I still love my son. And her use of the present tense, even every time I retell this story and I tell it all the time in interviews, it still gives me goosebumps because it was just such a powerful testament around love. And I, I sat with it for a bit and I very quickly came to the realization that, you know, of course I still love my mother. And I knew that was a part of the not getting over it, but I hadn't thought about her still loving me. 
I partnered with a bereavement professor and researcher from Harvard around writing this book because I didn't just want the book to be about my story and you know the things that I've uncovered living with loss the last 14 years, but I wanted to be grounded in research and the leading data and studies around bereavement. What I ultimately concluded through the process of researching and writing is that the love does continue. And when you share, when you share that kind of close, intimate, loving relationship with someone else, again, like those, those really close attachments, the love doesn't die when they die. Like that, that love, that relationship, all, everything you exchanged that leaves a permanent imprint on your brain. There is literally nothing for you to get over. And there is this theory of attachment called the continuing bonds theory of attachment that states that one of the healthiest ways of dealing with grief and loss is actually to figure out how you continue to have that bond, like what that relationship looks like now. And so for me, the title, it was both something that I found that I'd written in one of my notebooks that I uncovered when I was doing research. And then it was reinforced by that conversation with Trayvon's mother, like, oh, yeah, this doesn't go away. This doesn't stop. And then when I found research that actually supported my feelings and theories, it was, it was perfect. That was it. It's always appreciated, right? When we feel something internally, and then someone with a lot of letters after their name says, the science shows it's yes, true. You're, you're like, right. phew. You're right. <laughs> and the other thing that I, that I think is important to say, because you know, when we think of love, we think of rainbows and butterflies and cupcakes and babies and whatever, right? And when we think of grief, we think of wailing and moaning and funerals and old ladies in black dresses. I think it's important to acknowledge that while I believe that grief is love, that does not mean that I think that grief is somehow absent of pain. I've had plenty, plenty of painful grief experiences since losing my mother and since losing this pregnancy. But I think that that love is even involved in the pain of grief because so much of my pain surrounding my mother's absence is about what she isn't here to do with me or for me today. You know, like I would love to get her advice on my teething seven month old or exchange recipes, you know, or have her at these book launch events, for instance. The pain of grief is the pain of unrequited, unconditional love. Like the love feelings still exist, but your person is no longer here to act on those feelings. And that's why you are in pain. Like it, it sucks that they're no longer here to comfort us, to support us, to actually have a, you know, a real live conversation with us, et cetera. And that's where the feelings of pain and, and loss come into play. Well, thank you for the setup for the next question I wanted to ask you um, of having like big events in your life. And, you know, back in 2010, it was just a few years after your mom died and you joined Barack Obama's, President Barack Obama's administration. And you had a few different roles and eventually you became his deputy director of private sector engagement, which as a social worker, I have no idea what those words mean, Made up. but it sounds, <laughs> <laughs> sounds very fancy and important. And you know, thinking about those years, 
so soon after your mom died when you did have big accomplishments or big hurts or big challenges? Like, what was it like to go through those without your mom? Oh, it was awful. Um, one challenge that didn't make it into the book, or at least not in uh, great detail, is I learned maybe a year, just about a year into my tenure in the Obama administration that I have an underlying health condition that leads to infertility. So it was, I, I joined the administration in May and a few months in, I realized I was having some minor health issues, you know, like the headaches, not sleeping good. I was also feeling really emotional from time to time and, and it didn't feel like grief and I was very confused by it. And so I started going to the doctors and eventually went to a gynecologist and mind you, because my mom had died in 2008 and I moved down here for a job in 2010. In a lot of cases, I hadn't had like a comprehensive physical examination since before she passed away. You know, I was, I was a caretaker who also worked full time and ran a breast cancer charity on the side. And I was a kid. So let's be honest, you know, when you're in your mid twenties, even if you don't have the challenges of a dying parent, you're not going to the doctors as regularly as you should probably. Um, and so, you know, finally went to see a gynecologist and he figured out what was going on. And essentially what happened is at some point, probably from dealing with the trauma and stress and grief of caretaking and losing my mom, my ovaries basically just shut down. And so I found out right in between my mother's birthday and the anniversary of her death that I was no longer in a position to naturally become a mother myself. Um, I was single and it was, it was devastating. You know, I had wanted kids and had plans to become a mother since I was a child. There I was at 28 learning that my plans were not going to work out the way that I thought they were. That was devastating, you know, and then to learn years later from other doctors that my inability to reproduce is directly connected to the trauma and stress I experienced around my mother's death. It's a really hard thing to accept. Um, you know, I, and I have accepted it, but it's still something where the, being the kind of person that I am, I can't help but look back and think, what if I had done this or that differently, you know? And I, and I know that it just, it wasn't possible at the time. I was over capacity between work and taking care of my mom alongside my dad. But yeah, it's just really unfortunate. As you were talking, I was thinking about the idea that it seems like even like in grief and in a medical condition, that there's some part of you that is always looking for something like, I could have done something different. How was this my fault that this happened? I don't know if that rings true for you or not. Um, yeah. It definitely rings true for me. It definitely rings true for me. It'll be interesting for me to see my dad's response to the book and some of the things that I have struggled with that I've never shared with him, in part because I just, my, my caretaker instincts and desire to help others have almost always outweighed my instincts around taking care of myself. And so there's a lot, you know, I, I never really shared with him how impacted I was by the loss of my mom. I just, I didn't, you know, I, I felt like he didn't need 
to have to add worrying about me to his plate. Another question to add to our follow-up interview, mm-hmm. how does it go at the next family dinner after the book comes out? Right, I know, I know. He told me I could write whatever I wanted. So um, we'll see what he thinks. Uh, Marissa, as a writer, I'm curious, what are some words you would use to describe how your your grief feels now in this moment? It feels lighter. It is It is mostly connected to just wishing that my mom could be a part of my life now, you know, it's, it's, it's in some ways totally possible to imagine it and in other ways, totally impossible because so many things have happened since I lost her 14 years ago, but it is, it's seeing my son do something and realizing it reminds me of my mom or, you know, getting to take him to swim lessons and remembering getting to do the same thing with her when I was a little kid. Um, it's in the, you know, wanting her to share in the joy of this moment. I had a call yesterday with my grandmother, my, my dad's mom, but was really close with my mom, um, since my parents started dating when they were like 15. Um, and she, uh, she's 98, almost 99. And she said, you know, you have everything you ever wanted now. And, And when she said that I was driving and I was like, yeah, you know, she's right. And I just wish that my mom were here with me to experience it and enjoy it. I know she's here, but like we said, it's, it's not the same. So yeah, overall, my grief is lighter and it is very much just connected to these little moments that happen every day in life that remind you of your person, which in turn reminds you that they're not here anymore. It's like a paper cut, just sharp enough to like wake you up, um, but not not so sharp that you're overwhelmed by the pain. Well, Marissa, I'm really appreciating uh, the words that you shared with me today in this interview of helping to give grief a voice and also the words that you shared in your book, which is just really powerful listeners. And I'm excited that it's going to be out in the world, even though it's weird to use the word excitement with grief, but (laughs) there it is. I'm excited your book is going to be in the world. I think the message is really going to speak to so many different people. Anything you want listeners to know about book launch, book finding, connecting with you, learning more about your story? Yeah. So first of all, I just, I want to say to listeners, there's nothing wrong with you if you're grieving. Like that's okay. You're, you're figuring out how to live with loss and you will figure it out if you stay committed to taking care of yourself and, and being honest about what you're experiencing. In terms of following along, I am Marissa Renee Lee on all social platforms, especially Instagram for updates and information about events. And you can also sign up um, over on Instagram for my newsletter as well. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, Marissa, thank you again for your time today. And listeners, I will put all of that in the show notes so you can connect with Marissa. And yeah, I'll just say it again. Thank you, Marissa, for being part of the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And listeners out there, I thank you each and every time for being part of our community, for making the show mean what it does. We appreciate you tuning in and sharing the show and episodes with people who you think might be supported by what we're talking about here. Um, If you want to reach me, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. It's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, which is also our website where you'll find all the past episodes downloadable tip sheets, information about our local programming. And I'm also excited to share with you that this podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time.